0: and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision And so Abram became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abram had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abram, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire. In a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abram and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Amen. And may God bless to us that reading from his word. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Already in our studies and acts, we've seen a pattern emerging. We've seen how the church has been growing as people are converted to Christ. But at the same time, the church has begun to face opposition, growth and opposition. In this morning's passage, we see that opposition intensifying as we're introduced to the church's first martyr, the first Christian to die for his allegiance to Jesus. The Greek word martyres, which gives us our English word martyr, basically means witness. Christians are all called to be martyres, witnesses in that sense. But the word came to be used particularly of Christians who witness to the point of death. Stephen was the first such martyr. And there have been countless other Christians down through the centuries who have died for their faith in Jesus. We have a long passage to cover this morning, but I'll try not to overrun. You will see from the service sheet you were given as you came in that I'd like to highlight four things. First, the man. What kind of man was Stephen? Secondly, the charges. What was he supposed to have done? Thirdly, the defense. How did Stephen defend himself before the Jewish religious court, the Sanhedrin? And fourthly, the outcome. What was the result? The man, the charges, the defense, the outcome. First of all, then, the man. Stephen is first mentioned in the passage we looked at last week. We saw how a dispute arose in the Jerusalem church between Aramaic-speaking Palestinian Christians and Christians who had lived in other parts of the Mediterranean uh, Mediterranean world and who were more comfortable speaking Greek. The Greek-speaking Jews, or Hellenists, complained that the widows in their community were losing out when food was being distributed to the needy. The apostles wanted to address the issue, but they recognized that their priorities were the ministry of the word and prayer. And so they suggested that seven men be appointed to oversee the daily food distribution. And one of these men was Stephen. Stephen is described in verse 5 of uh, chapter 6 as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Stephen clearly had administrative gifts. But as well as that, he was a respected Christian with a strong faith and a deep spirituality. We often tend to think, don't we, of spiritual roles in the church as being superior to more practical roles but the fact that Stephen had a very practical role and yet was an eminently godly man challenges such notions the kind of person we are matters far more than what we do And it's also the case that whatever our role in the church is, whatever we do, our greatest contribution to the life and witness of the church is to be godly. That's a challenge for each one of us. In verse 8, we're told that uh, Stephen was full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. The Holy Spirit was pleased to use Stephen to demonstrate his power. Stephen also had a gracious, Christ-like character. That's underlined in a very practical way towards the end of chapter 7, where Stephen prays two prayers. He prays that those who are stoning him will not have that sin laid to their account. And he commits his spirit to Jesus. Doesn't that remind us of how Jesus, as he hung on the cross, prayed that those who were crucifying him would be forgiven and committed his spirit to his heavenly Father? Stephen was like Jesus in his life and even in his death. Stephen may have been a practical man, but he also shared the good news about Jesus. He proclaimed the gospel, he articulated it. That seems to be how he got into trouble. Members of a Hellenistic synagogue fell out with him because they objected to what he was saying, but they couldn't get the better of him in debate. Luke tells us that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. After all, he was speaking God's truth in the power of God the Holy Spirit. Stephen was some man, a gifted man, a man of strong faith, a man of Christ-like character, a man in and through whom the Holy Spirit was at work, a man who witnessed unashamedly for Jesus. Compared with him, probably all of us here who are Christians feel like spiritual pygmies. But you know, what God wants of you and of me is for us to become by his grace the man, the woman he wants us to be. So what are we doing about that? The man. Now let's consider secondly the charges. What was Stephen supposed to have done? Or rather, what was he supposed to have said? Those who opposed him accused him of blasphemy against Moses And God. And it was in a charge of blasphemy that Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, the ruling council of Judaism. He obviously offended religious sensibilities. False witnesses told the council, verse 13 of chapter 7. Chapter 6 This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Stephen was accused of speaking against Moses and against God. More particularly, he was accused of attacking the temple the place which symbolized God's presence among his covenant people. And of attacking the law, the rules for life and worship which God had given to his people through Moses. It seems that Stephen was saying that Jesus would destroy the temple, or at least that's what the false witnesses said, And they claimed that he was teaching that Jesus would change the law and change the customs which they had received from their forefathers. There was no doubt an element of truth in the charges brought against Stephen. In his preaching and teaching, he probably reflected what Jesus had himself said. Remember the charge on which Jesus was put to death. The basis of that charge was that he had said that he would destroy the temple and in three days raise it again. In his gospel, John points out that Jesus was referring to the temple of his body rather than to the physical temple. But it's interesting that Jesus was using temple language Of himself. He was referring to his own body as a temple. And elsewhere he said, One greater than the temple is here. Jesus taught that he was the one who fulfilled all that the temple stood for. And with his coming, the temple was effectively superseded. From that point on, the focal point for meeting God would no longer be a place, but a person. Stephen understood that. He appreciated that Jesus superseded the temple. Similarly, as regards the law of Moses... Stephen probably taught that the law was now fulfilled and superseded in Christ. For example, all the sacrifices that were prescribed in the law were no longer required because with Jesus' death, a once-for-all sacrifice for sin had been made. The era of law had gone. The era of the new covenant had been inaugurated. There was an element of truth in the charges brought against Stephen. But the charges did not reflect the whole truth. No way was Stephen attacking God or Moses. He wasn't attacking either of them. He had the highest respect for Moses as the one through whom the law had been given. All he was saying was that the law had been superseded by Christ And, of course, he worshipped God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he recognised that in Jesus, God had come into the world in human form. That's what Stephen was saying. His views were much more subtle, much more nuanced than his opponents gave him credit for. They willfully put a spin on what he said because they didn't want to accept what he was saying. The man, the charges. Now let's look thirdly at the defense. The defense which Stephen mounts before the Sanhedrin. Stephen's speech is actually the longest discourse we have recorded in the book of Acts. It covers whole swathes of Old Testament history. Stephen clearly knows the Scriptures, and he knows how to read them. He understands that they are the account of God's progressive revelation of himself and of his purposes. He starts off with God's call to Abram. Then he turns to Abram's great-grandsons, the sons of Jacob, and Joseph in particular, He then speaks at length about Moses, the great deliverer of God's people, before touching on the early period of the the monarchy. In this selective recital of Old Testament history, Stephen is addressing the two issues of which he has been charged. He addresses God and the temple on the one hand, and Moses and the law on the other. Let's look first of all at the issue of God and the temple. Stephen demonstrates to his hearers that for much of their history, the Israelites had no temple. Indeed, the God of glory, as Stephen calls him in verse 2, was not tied to any physical location. He appeared to Abram, first of all, in the land of Mesopotamia. He appeared to him later in Haran, another far-flung location. God did promise Abram that he would give his descendants a land of Canaan. But Abram himself never owned any of the land. He owned no part of it, verse 5, not even a foot's length. Despite being the greatest of the patriarchs, Abraham had no personal stake in the promised land. But God was pleased to reveal himself to him in a variety of places. Abraham's great-grandson Joseph was sold into the pagan land of Egypt. But God was with him there, verse 9 of chapter 7, and he prospered him in Egypt. Indeed, Joseph was instrumental in his relatives leaving Canaan in a time of famine and finding refuge in Egypt. And for hundreds of years, the covenant family remained in Egypt. When God later set about rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt, where did he commission his chosen rescuer, Moses? In a burning bush. In the Sinai Desert, verse 30. In that most unlikely place, God appeared to Moses as the God of your fathers, the God of Abram and of Isaac and of Jacob. He even instructed him to remove his sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Holy ground in the Sinai Desert? Yes, of course, because God was there. And he wasn't tied to any one physical location. After the Israelites were rescued from slavery in Egypt, Moses was told to make the tent of witness. This was the tent which symbolized God's presence among his people. It was the place where the Israelites could, in a sense, meet with God. But it was only a tent. It was a tent which they had to pack up and carry with them as they moved around the wilderness from place to place. It was only in the time of King Solomon that the first temple was built. But not even the temple, however splendid it was, could really be God's house. Look at what Stephen says in verse 48 of chapter 7. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Do you see what Stephen's saying? He's saying that God isn't confined to any physical location. He's the God of the whole earth. Not even the God-given land of Israel, the promised land, is essential to his worship. For much of their history, the covenant people had little or no stake in the land. But God was with them and revealed himself to them. And even when the temple was built, it was no more than a symbol of his presence. How could an infinitely great God be confined to an earthly building? Stephen's hearers needn't be disturbed if with the life, death and resurrection of Jesus... The temple is superseded. It was only a temporary provision at best. The other issue which Stephen addresses is that of Moses and the law. What does he say about that? Well, first of all, he reminds the Sanhedrin in verse 8 of chapter 7 that God gave Abram the covenant of circumcision. Circumcision was the physical mark of belonging to God's covenant people. It predated the Mosaic law, but the law reinforced the practice, and it became an integral part of law-keeping. Those who were marked with a covenant sign were expected to live in accordance with covenant standards. In verse 38, Stephen refers to the actual giving of the law. He says that Moses was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers and received living oracles to give to us. But while Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law, what were the Israelites doing? Verse 40, they were asking Aaron to make gods for them to lead them through the desert. And in response, Aaron had a golden calf fashioned for them to worship. That constituted blatant rejection of Moses' leadership. It was outright rebellion against God. Stephen says in verse 39, Our fathers refused to obey Moses. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. They forgot all that they owed to God. They forgot all that Moses had done for them. And instead they hankered after their old life in Egypt. Well, Stephen says, that's how much our ancestors rated Moses. That's how much they rated God's provision of the law. And that wasn't just an unfortunate blip in Israelite history. Down through the centuries, again and again, they had defied God and the message he brought to them through his prophets. Stephen boldly asks in verse 52, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? God's spokesman from Moses onwards had repeatedly been rejected. And the members of the Sanhedrin that Stephen was addressing were no better themselves They made much of the law, but they didn't keep it. Verse 53 You received the law as delivered by angels. You recognize what a glorious provision it is, but you did not keep it. They talked the talk, but they didn't walk the walk. Verse 51 is extremely hard hitting. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Stephen accuses the religious leaders of stubbornly refusing to obey the Lord. Their bodies may carry the covenant sign, but that's just about all. Because their ears aren't prepared to listen to what God is saying. Their hearts are not submissive to him. And at bottom they resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen pulls no punches. We may find what he says here almost shocking in its directness. And I don't suggest this is the kind of language we should use at the school gate or in chatting to our colleagues, but we need to remember that Stephen here is speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's addressing men who claim to know the Scriptures and more than that claim to know God. Their problem is not ignorance, it's a willful refusal to live up to what they know. Stephen exposes the Jews' hypocrisy in accusing him of undermining the law. They and their ancestors have done no more than pay lip service to the law. More than that, they have failed to see that Jesus is the one to whom the law and the prophets pointed. Moses was a great man, but hadn't he foretold the coming of an even greater prophet? Verse 37, Moses said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. The later prophets had made similar predictions. They announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. But what had the religious leaders done to the righteous one when he came? They had betrayed and murdered him. Not only did the religious leaders keep the law fitfully at best, the whole point of it was lost on them. They missed its focus on Jesus. Because the charges brought against Stephen were theological in nature, Stephen's defense is essentially theological. So I wonder how we can apply it to ourselves. Well, I think for a start, we see here how important it is to understand how the whole Bible fits together. We need to try to grasp the storyline of Scripture. You know, it's often said by non-Christians that you can make the Bible say anything. Now, there's an element of truth in that. That's why we need to be able to read Scripture in context. Stephen was able to do that, and he sets us a very good example. But there's something else. Stephen is addressing here people who by their way of it were very religious. But, you know, religion in itself is not necessarily a good thing. It can be a very bad thing. These people, instead of honoring the God they claimed to worship, were actually hardening their hearts against him. They had all the trappings of religion, but they missed out on its reality. And in a similar way, it's possible for any one of us today to be so caught up in the church and yet fail to see the point of what the church is about. We may have been brought up in the church. We may be steeped in its traditions. But it's possible that we have never actually received the salvation which Jesus offers We may never have made him Lord of our lives. We may do the right things and yet resist the Holy Spirit. We are made right with God, not by our church connection or even by knowing about Jesus, but rather by believing in him, by committing all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of him. The man, the charges, the defense. Fourthly and finally, the outcome. At one level, the outcome was dire. It seems that Stephen's address was cut short and that mob rule took over as his opponents rushed at him, bundled him out of the city and proceeded to stone him. They were enraged by how he interpreted and applied scripture. But what enraged them even more was when he shared with them his vision of the risen and exalted Christ. His unashamed proclamation of Jesus as God's Messiah was too much. Jesus divides people. He did then, and he does now. Stephen was stoned to death. And his death marked the beginning of a period of sustained persecution for the Jerusalem church. He was the first of countless Christians who have been martyred for their faith. It's reckoned that in the 20th century, as many Christians were killed for their faith as in all the preceding centuries of the Christian era put together. And it still goes on. There are Christians suffering for their faith in many parts of the world today. That is a sobering reality. But Stephen died in the faith of Christ. For him death was not the end. He wasn't suffering for a cause or in support of a principle. He was suffering for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And amidst the mayhem that surrounded him in the closing moments of his life... He was privileged to catch a glimpse of Christ's glory. He knew that his life was safe with Christ in God. That's why he could pray for his persecutors and consciously commit his spirit to the Lord Jesus. And that's why in verse 60 Luke describes his death despite its brutality in terms of falling asleep. God was also at work in the situation. He used the persecution which arose following Stephen's death to scatter the Jerusalem Christians throughout Judea and Samaria. Remember how before his ascension, the risen Jesus had commissioned his disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now that began to be fulfilled as those who had become Christians in Jerusalem fled to the surrounding countryside and further afield. So often the blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church. And there's something else. Luke notes that the men who stoned Stephen laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul approved of Stephen's execution. He hated the adherence of the new faith. But God wasn't finished with that fiery young man. In due course, Saul was converted to Christ. And as Paul, he became a leading apostle and the writer of much of what makes up our New Testament. Stephen died, but his God Was still very much in control. Evil did not and will not have the last word. Shall we pray? Oh Lord, we thank you for those down through the centuries who have witnessed for the Lord Jesus even at the cost of their lives and so have ensured that the gospel has been passed down to us today. We pray very specially for those who are suffering for their faith. Even now, we ask that you would give them great grace, grace to match their need for ourselves, we pray that we may value the gospel and that we may seek to live in accordance with it. May none of us fail to see the reality of the gospel. May we commit ourselves to the Lord Jesus as the one who fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament, the one to whom the temple pointed, the one in whom the sacrifices of the law were fulfilled. We ask it in his name. Amen.